amazingly generous uh, and then also an indication of your own modesty. Um, we've just heard, in a sense, a, a history of a great person in the Labour movement which contained some ambiguity. Uh, Margaret Bonfield's life, in many ways, is an example of extraordinary ambiguity, and I'll try and expose some of that. For the first 20 years of her life in the Labour movement, she was startlingly successful. She broke through all sorts of barriers. She collected all sorts of support, particularly for women trade unionists and women trade unions. And uh, there was no doubt that in a number of areas, particularly in respect of shop work, she improved the lives of women quite significantly in the way you could actually measure. Um, she was modest, too. Tradition that's uh, gone down the female line, I think, in the TUC. Uh, she scoffed, scoffed at the idea of being a pioneer. Uh, she said that other people were much more important. Uh, but for the record, and uh, uh, this is one of the reasons why we've identified her as for particular attention, she was the first woman government minister, she was the first woman cabinet minister. She was the first woman Privy Councillor. She was the first woman member of the General Council, which is perhaps a, a glass ceiling that was more difficult to break. And she was the first woman to chair the General Council of the TUC. Now, this record, together with her work to improve the lives of shop workers, her determination in support of the cause of universal suffrage, her work for peace during the Great War and her successful campaign in a number of welfare areas, particularly in respect to maternity pay, you would have thought that all of this would have made her an icon of the Labour movement. But of course, that never happened. And for the last 20 years of her life, she was really subject of, well, denunciation, snubs, frankly, being totally ignored. She became invisible. She was forced into invisibility. And I'll explore that, some of that. But just an indication of how far this person with such a record of achievement slipped out of the mainstream. When someone was trying to write a biography of Margaret Bonfield, they approached Jenny Lee who uh, went into Parliament on exactly the same day as Margaret Bonfield and asked, would Jenny please give her a, an interview about Margaret Bonfield's work? And Jenny Lee's reply was, I didn't know her very well. Barbara Castle uh, was rather less generous. Um, she said on a number of occasions that she despised Margaret Bonfield, and on several occasions she came very close to accusing Margaret Bonfield of betrayal. And then when the Labour Party centenary history was written, extraordinarily in that book there is no mention of Margaret Bonfield. So instead of being everybody's hero, Margaret Bonfield really 
disappeared behind the curtain. Well, all this needs a bit of explaining, and perhaps this is a time for a rather more balanced judgment. In her early years, uh, she was born in Chard in Somerset in 1873, um, the 11th child of a very large family. She was uh, from a nonconformist background, and that showed through much of her career. Uh, but uh, she was enormously bright, phenomenally bright. Uh, at the age of 14, she was put to work in the school teaching the younger children. Now this is something that bright boys were allowed to do. Giving that job to a bright girl was absolutely unheard of. But then, when she uh, left school, she was looking for a job. A friend of her sister <coughs> had a draper shop in Hove near Brighton, and uh, she went to work there. Um, fortunately, the employer was kind, but uh, Margaret began to mix with other shop workers in Sussex and found just how <coughs> privileged she was and how badly treated most of them were. I mean, pay was low, hours were long, freedom was very restricted, and what was worst of all was the fact that the live-in system was the norm. They had to live above the shop in sort of makeshift dormitories. They were under the employer's control for the whole time, whether they were meant to be having time off or not. Her own political education began when she met in, uh, in Sussex the Equal Rights Campaign of Louise uh, Martindale. And Martindale took her under her wing gave her a very good grounding in the need for female suffrage and also went much further and argued with her very strongly that she, Bonfield, should become one of a generation arguing for female emancipation. When the draper's shop in Hove closed down, she went with her brother, who was then working in London, and looked for a job in London. I must say that uh, the employers she found there were much less kind and much less generous than the friend of her sister in Hove and she began to confront the realities of life. But she reacted to the working conditions by joining the Shop Assistance Union and, well, Martin Dale has done a good job, uh, becoming a local representative. She joined the Fabian Society, which was very active and uh, very often had speakers from London um, going around the country. She saw in London George Bernard Shaw, Charles Dilk, Ramsay MacDonald and his wife. His wife became a great personal friend of hers. So she began to settle into the life of progressive politics. The more important thing, as far as her trade union activity was concerned, was she was spotted by an organisation called the Women's Industrial Council, which was in many ways both a combination of trade unions and, uh, I'll explain this a bit later on, a substitution for trade unions. And they asked her to represent them. Eventually, they asked her, 
Would she be prepared to move from shop to shop, collecting information about shop workers' conditions, and writing a report comparing those shop working conditions with other uh, workers in the community? So at the age of 23, she became, in effect, an industrial spy. Now, this was uh, actually a great personal risk because, of course, once she, once she got, if she was identified and got sacked, the chances of getting another job are pretty restricted because the networks would be operating and she would be excluded. But as a result of this, she wrote a report on shop workers' wages and conditions and their uh, mode of life, which became quite celebrated. It was well advertised by the Women's Industrial Council. And, in fact, it became so impressive that uh, she became something of a minor celebrity, an expert on shop work in her mid-twenties. And, as a result, was appointed as Assistant Secretary of the Shop Assistance Union. She began to write regular articles for the Union journals. And she was even, and this gives an indication of her increasing celebrity, she was asked to give evidence to two select committees, one on shops and one on the truck acts. So she's now becoming quite a figure in the labour movement. She became an executive member of the uh, Women's Trade Union League, and then she made a significant, uh, well, I suppose introduction, meeting, whatever. Uh, she met Mary MacArthur, a young trade union organiser from the north of England, and she was absolutely captivated by her. Uh, in fact, Mary was very much the love of her life. Um, Mont Bonfield wrote about her. She was gloriously young and self-confident, with glowing eyes, brilliant gifts, and such vital energy. They worked together for as long as Mary MacArthur lived. In 1906, the two of them, highly frustrated by the difficulties that women were finding in getting into male-dominated unions, they formed the uh, National Federation of Women Workers and started recruiting particularly in those sectors of the economy where the unions would not accept women. So, this is a person already who has made a considerable difference to the trade union movement and frankly to the lives of some working, working people. She was always, though, fascinated by politics. And in 1908, she made a choice. She's decided to step back with Mary MacArthur becoming the more significant trade union figure so that she could concentrate on politics. Um, she was, because of her growing prestige, she was invited to all sorts of public bodies. She sat on the committee advising the Liberal government on its welfare plans. You remember this was a matter of great controversy in the first years of the 20th century. And she was largely responsible, from everything I can find out, for the inclusion of maternity benefit in that package of, uh, of welfare benefits. 
And more important than that, and this was a bit out of time, um, she was able to get it accepted that the maternity benefit, benefit would not be the property of the family, hence of the husband, but become the property of the mother. So, you know, women have got quite a lot to thank Margaret Bonfield for. Throughout the First World War, she was, together with Mary MacArthur and many other women activists, working very hard for peace and, of course, to try to carry on the suffrage campaign, which in a rather different form uh, had begun to fade away as the, uh, the suffragettes decided to wind up their particular campaign and support the war. And Christabel Pankhurst, in particular, made something of a thing about giving out white feathers. Sorry, there's a bit of prejudice in there, but uh, we can deal with that. We can deal with that later. When the war was over, and some women had the vote, Margaret Bonfield decided that she was going to try to stand for Parliament. And uh, that's the moment at which tragedy intervenes. She's on the, really, the threshold of a major political career to go alongside her earlier trade union career. And uh, the National Federation of Women Workers have been negotiating with what became the NUGMW for an amalgamation. It was going to be Mary MacArthur who was going to be the women's officer of the NUGMW. And very shortly before vesting day of the amalgamation, Mary MacArthur died. And this changed Margaret Pomfield's life completely. Having wanted to move away from the trade union activity into a much more committed a career in politics, she was effectively pulled back in to preserve the amalgamation and also, of course, to honour her friend Mary MacArthur's life and work. She accepted that she would become the women's officer of NUGMW. Some people say that that point when she lost her friend was the moment when her personality changed a bit. It was very difficult for her. She was devastated. It was very difficult for her to get over that. She was been so close to Mary for so long. And certainly there are indications that her political judgment was going and frankly uh, her personal commitment seemed to be wavering. She was now the woman's officer of the NUGMW and uh, fortunately for her political ambitions at that time, rather eccentrically, the NUGMW had a rule which permitted officials of the union to become MPs. In fact, there were quite a lot of senior officials of the NUGMW who were MPs, including the President, the General Secretary, one of the two national officers, and I could go on for a longer list. Um, yeah, it must have been a very empty head office. But anyway, um, so, sorry, I had to suffer some of this, so really, I'm sorry it's come of it, some of it's coming out. But um, fortunately, of course, she could pursue this uh, thing, and after a number of false starts, she became MP for Northampton. That was in 23. 24, of course, was the first Labour government. And her friend, 
Ramsey MacDonald um, offered her the junior ministerial position, parliamentary secretary in the Ministry of Labour. Uh, this didn't actually improve the relationships with the, uh, with the TUC because um, she'd just been elected to chair the General Council from her new uh, NUGMW position and she was actually chairing a meeting when the message came from Ramsay MacDonald that could he meet one of his representatives downstairs. So she scuttled downstairs and saw the representative and the offer was made. Then went up and told the general council that she was going to leave them and become a junior minister. Um, yeah, those of us who know the TUC and know the general council can imagine the reaction of that august body. Of course, they would have been entirely behind the Labour Party and wouldn't have been a moment's distress, not bloody much. <laughs> anyway, um, after the fall of the Labour government, she, refer she returned to the general council and played a very active part during the the general strike. She visited strike committees across the country. By and large, she was well received. She thought it was a very difficult job, and later on it was, it was a very difficult job. She supported the decision to end the, the strike, but it's clear from her autobiography that she really drastically underestimated the effect of that decision. Um, she thought or she purported to think that it was a technical decision. The TUC had done as much as it could, it was now standing back. Uh, she quite misses the fact that in general this was regarded as a massive defeat. What follows, and you can see the beginning of a down here stretch here after Mary MacArthur's death, what follows is probably the darkest period of her political career. Because she was a well-known figure, and of course, in many ways, the most important woman in the Parliamentary Labour Party, she was invited to join the committee, the Blainsborough Committee, that was set up to examine uh, unemployment insurance. And she worked on that, apparently very diligently, for nearly a couple of years. And when the report was published, it recommended limits on unemployment pay and a cut in the unemployment pay of single women. And the horror was that Margaret Bonfield signed the bloody report. No one understood why. Uh, she quickly found herself isolated. Labour Party condemned it, the TUC condemned the report. Uh, she was even, and those of you who know the NUGMW can imagine the importance of this, she was even taken aside by the Northern District Secretary of the NUGMW who advised her to uh, step away from the report and to disown it. Um, she refused. Why she did that is a complete mystery. Up until then she fully accepted the Labour movement's position which was the government can do something about unemployment. It shouldn't focus on fiddling around with unemployment pay. What it should direct its policy to was creating employment and reducing the problem, not reducing the income of the people who were unfortunate enough to unemployed. She uh, went to Huddersfield to meet the Labour Women's Committee conference 
and I think you can imagine the sort of reception he, she got there. It was a very difficult time for her. The moment passed, but the fact that she signed that document was kept in people's minds and haunted her, frankly, three years later when other and worse things happened. Labour was the biggest party after the 1929 election. And MacDonald offered Bonfield this time, not a junior minister position, in, but the Minister of Labour. So she was in the cabinet, as I've said, the first women, woman cabinet member. She had worked with MacDonald and admired him and been very close to his wife until she died. And for a time, there was no doubt that she regarded, as many did, MacDonald as a hero of the Labour movement. It's true, and her autobiography makes this clear, that after the general strike, she was getting increasingly worried by the fact that MacDonald in public sometimes, and in private very often, was making statements critical of the trade union movement and saying that it was damaging the Labour Party. And rather more insidiously, a lot of public comment on the fact that he seemed to spend quite a lot of time with wealthy Tory supporters. But these reservations she had was nothing, of course, to what came next. There were so many rumours circulating about what MacDonald was going to do that he made a very, very fulsome statement to the, uh, to the Labour cabinet saying that uh, all this uh, rumour mongering was nonsense and that you know, he'd given his life to the Labour Party and he was working for nothing other than a very successful Labour government. Yeah, right. Well, it wasn't too many days later when the bombshell fell and it had all been lies. Uh, although he was uttering soothing words, he had been negotiating with the Conservative opposition to set up a national government and relying heavily on Tory support. Now, like most of the cabinet, this is very important, Margaret Bonfield refused to join Macdonald's national government. But her mistake was that she waited such a long time to say so. Uh, the reason is probably straightforward. Um, it's perfectly clear that she could not believe that he would have done such a thing. There must be some other motive. There must something else must be happening. And she looked to him for an explanation, which of course he didn't give. But other people saw a delay. They remembered her earlier decision to sign the Blainsborough Committee report in favour of certain cuts in welfare benefit. It was known that's what the national government wanted to do. So the general perception was that she was hesitating because she rather supported some of the policies of the national government, even though in the end she didn't join it. Um, she was summoned before the NUGMW executive. Uh, she gave her explanation that uh, she hadn't joined the national government, never intended to do so. And the NUGMW believed her. But I have to say, very few other people in the Labour movement did. And that was really the end of her reputation and her 
political career. There was an election soon after. Many, many Labour MPs lost their seats, including Margaret Bonfield. She never sat in Parliament again. She was persona non grata to a large number of unions and was never elected again to the General Council of the TUC. She was ill for many months with what sounds very much like depression, but then went back to her job in the NUGMW. When I joined the union in uh, 1967, yeah, well, it's, you know, it's... Uh, living carefully that makes me look like this, but 1967, <laughs> there were still people who remembered her, uh, not as an official, she retired in 1938, but as someone who regularly visited the uh, head office of the union, and her main motive in visiting the head office of the union was to make sure that the holiday home system, which she set up in the name of Mary MacArthur, her friend, was being operated uh, properly. And people there remain, remembered her as uh, a tiny woman, they all said that, full of authority. But the other thing they said was she had a wonderful speaking voice. And uh, she used that to great effect early in, in her career. Um, there's a famous occasion when, for which Sylvia Pankhurst never forgave her, incidentally, when a debate was organised between Margaret Bonfield and, as it turned out, uh, Isabel Ford, arguing the suffragette case. And Margaret Bonfield pointed out with absolute contempt that the suffragette argument was not in favour of votes for all women, but in votes for women on the same basis as men. And of course, at that time, a lot of men didn't have the vote. So winning that particular campaign would have left many working class women, as Margaret Bonfield said, betrayed and without the vote that they thought they were fighting for. Uh, uh, both she and Mary MacArthur, of course, were very strongly in favour of universal suffrage. And eventually that came about in 1928. But it was that voice and that ability uh, to move an audience uh, that won that debate overwhelmingly and won many others. There was a time when she died in 53, 1953, there was a moment of respite from the backbiting and her achievements were remembered. Clem Attlee spoke at her funeral. But it didn't change the atmosphere. When she was mentioned after that, it still tended to be in derogatory fashion. In a moment of extraordinary extravagance, Barbara Castle said that she wanted the name of the Ministry of Labour changed because it was too associated with Margaret Bonfield and she didn't want people to remember Margaret Bonfield's betrayal. Wow. Now that's all properly documented. It's almost impossible to believe it happened, but there we are. So she went from being a major Labour Party trade union figure, important member of the TUC, important member of Labour early governments, to being invisible. She's now, to a great extent, a forgotten woman. Now no doubt she deserved a certain amount of censure, 
but she also, I think, warrants admiration and a good deal of sympathy. As a matter of fact, she never did join the national government. She never did follow MacDonald into his betraying position. But the Labour movement ever since seemed to have treated her as if he had. Well, I believe she's an important woman in our history, and I think that it's time for a reassessment. Thanks very much for this.